The Way Out Podcast, episode 342. What is your name? My name is Dawn Nickel. Dawn, what was your substance of choice or DOC if you had one? Well, it was all of them mostly, but <laughs> I would say the um, probably at the end, kind of when I went into treatment in 1987, it was for a cocaine addiction, uh, serious alcohol issues and marijuana and all the pills, mostly benzos. So many listening right now can relate to that, Don. Yeah. Yeah. And when I got out of treatment, I didn't do those things anymore, but I then proceeded to smoke a lot of pot for two years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was my harm reduction period, right? That was, I was, it, it takes us many years, I think, to develop the coping skills that we need to face life on life's terms. Yeah. And I couldn't do it when I had all those substances um, taken away from me, so to speak. <laughs> or if I put them aside, I suppose I can take more agency in that. But For sure. And it works until it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And the longer I'm in recovery, the more I recognize it's a process of continuing to identify the addictions and counterproductive thought and behavior patterns right. that are no longer serving me. For sure. I mean, for me, and I, you know, I, I would probably argue for most of us, the drugs were kind of the things that made us, allowed us to kind of stay here, kind of stay in life, right? They were our coping mechanisms. They were the things that uh, allowed me to continue to live and not, not kind of face the demons that were really underneath, right? It wasn't, the drugs the drugs were the solution more than the problem for me. For Without question. Time. Yeah. So I think it's, and and after kind of pot, I found love addiction. And mm. most recently, in the last 11 years, that my journey has been about workaholism. Throw in a little bit of codependency, some, <laughs> lots of anxiety in the intervening years. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, sometimes when I give the list or I talk about the list of things that I consider myself to be in recovery from, from the outside, it might sound kind of depressing. But right. for me, it's just reality. And I think it's probably reality for more people than than know that so many of us suffer from anxiety, for instance. It's, you know, but not everybody recognizes that that is what is creating the urge to pick up the drink every day after work or to... Um, numb out on our devices, which is again probably something that I struggle with more than I need to. Um, so yeah, I just I think it is. Yeah, it's kind of the idea when I got into my twelve-step recovery program, in which I was entirely devoted to. I still consider myself a member, although she recovers means that I, I probably I focus more of my attention on she recovers um, than I do on that twelve-step program. Um, it always amazed me when people could talk about their quote doc because it was like yeah just kind of just anything give it to me <laughs> i'm good <laughs> absolutely you know, i think there was a term there was a term in the pro in the program that i belong to it was kind of like you're um, a garbage can junkie if you just <laughs> equal opportunity yeah and it's been my experience don through my active addiction and into my recovery that removing addictions often creates a void and 
there's other things that want to fill that that are counterproductive or that are addictions in and of themselves. For me, just like you, so many other things I have been addicted to, whether that be food, whether that be alcohol, drugs, sex. Shopping, gambling. Yeah. And it was very much addiction whack-a-mole. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that's okay, right? I mean, that's life, I think. It, I absolutely. Don't think it's just kind of everybody has their own, excuse my language, and you just kind of, <laughs> you you attack it as it comes up. And uh, I would say probably when I think of all of the things, I still have to really be very mindful about my overworking. I still have to, I still have yeah. to start recovery from addiction to my device. Yeah. My iPhone, right? I, I've kind of every once in a while, but if people are familiar with the stages of the change, like I'm in pre-contemplation about well, how much I want to give up my phone, right? I, you know, I, every once in a while, I think I'm in contemplation and I move into action. I signed yes. up for a, <laughs> I signed up for a breakup with your phone course. And I, I was kind of following the prompts and what to do for about four days. And then I got a new phone and I was like, I can't break up with my phone now. It's <laughs> brand new and shiny. So again, that's kind of there still, right? Um, shopping, I, you know, I still think that some days um, I just need a quick fix. And Amazon provides that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really quick, like literally. Yeah. I want yeah. this and it's on my doorstep within 24 hours. So. Absolutely. Um, I don't think we need to demonize um, kind of some of these things, but I do think that if we want to live a mindful, healthy life, then we have to acknowledge that those things are there and and work to minimize the damage. And look, sometimes we're willing to pay the price. Yeah. If I'm aware of it and cognizant of it, and know that it may not be the most healthy yeah. behavior, yeah. but also understand that this is something that gets me through X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And I'm willing to pay that price, at least for now. And right. talk about the stages of change, right? I mean, another case in point, Netflix. Right. I Absolutely. mean, I can, I can make a decision that I'm going to binge something. It's not yep. going to be in my best interest to stay yep. up as late as I'm going to stay up. Yep. <laughs> but I'm stressed out mm -hmm. over everything else that's going on in my life. And I just want to tune out. Absolutely. And, and so I make that decision. And again, I think, you know, not to make light of these behaviors, but it's kind of the, what I feel is the behaviors that I now engage in. Um, they're they're doing harm to myself. They're doing less harm to others around me and society. Um, with the exception of workaholism, when I, if I'm really in that, then it is affecting the, you know, my loved ones, the people around me. Yeah. But yeah. So that's all the stuff. Those are all, you know, so many of the things. And then there's lots of things that I could never identify as being in recovery from. Right. I, I think about a friend of mine, um, Ariel Brett, she's not a close friend of mine, but I just adore her <laughs> and an acquaintance, I suppose. And she, um, she once posted this really beautiful Facebook post about being a black woman in recovery and how, you know, she was in recovery from racism and oppression. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't relate to that. I can't relate right. to that. And Absolutely. nor will I ever be able to. And I need, you know, we need to acknowledge that there are things that people are in recovery from that we, uh, that we are not. And uh, we kind of need to take those things into consideration in our communities. You know, so I, I kind of, one of my one of the reasons that we created my daughter and I created a kind of a more inclusive recovery ethos 
is we wanted a place where we could go where nothing would be an outside issue, where people would be free to talk about anything at all that was going on in their life. Um, and, and, and also understand completely that the primary purposes of 12 step recovery is it's very important for those programs to have yeah. that primary purpose. So yeah. with, with all due respect to that, I still think, and maybe even, maybe a little bit even more for women. I don't know. I mean, I am married to a guy in recovery. He's, he's been in recovery as long as I have. So he's got 30 some years, but uh, it is different. You know, we, we do, we want to talk and engage with and explore more about our kind of our whole life. And uh, so having a kind of place where we can do that without kind of guardrails around what we're, what we're allowed to talk to is really helpful. I couldn't agree more. And you talk about she recovers and we're going to talk a lot more about that in the main part of the interview. Don, what is your clean and or sober date? Uh, which one? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so in, in the program that I am a member of, because I will always be a member of that program as long as I has, have a desire to stop using drugs, um, I would claim my clean date as, what would it be? It would be May 11th, 2000. So that would be 23 years going on. Darn near 23 years. Yeah. But... I have a, a, a kind of a more expansive view of recovery. Yeah. So, I mean, my clean date is not the same as my recovery. I went into treatment in 1987. And then because I smoked massive amounts of marijuana, um, I don't consider my true recovery date to be until two years hence after after treatment. So that, would, that was May 15th, 1989. And between 1989 and now, the only time I used a substance to change the way I felt was in late April, early May 2000. So I had, you know, a significant amount of time and my mom passed away. And for two days in May uh, 2000, I, I, I took her pills that were left over and it wasn't, mm. you know, and, and at the time it was not, it was kind of like, I need to, I need to numb out. I need to rest. I need to just not deal with this trauma that was kind of post-traumatic because she'd been um, extremely ill for 16 months. And I took those pills as prescribed for, uh, you know, I you know, I think it was maybe 36 hours. And then I remember just looking at this bottle of pills and going, okay, I know how this story ends. And um, stopped, you know, threw them out and, and haven't used a substance to change the way I felt. Not, I haven't used kind of a drug um, to change the way I felt since. So. So I feel like I've been in recovery for going on 36 years. For sure. And then my periods of abstinence are something that I claim separately and differently. And I do that purposefully because yeah. in, in our community, in my community, in my recovery community, again, in 12-step, I'm like, your clean date's your clean date. We don't mess yeah. around with that. That's what it is. I'm not here to argue it differently. And you know, as I said, when I'm in that, in those meetings or in that program, I stand clearly what my clean date is. But the, what I find outside of that program is giving people permission to identify their recovery date as different from their sobriety or clean date. Helps eliminate and alleviate the shame of relapse that sometimes is what drives people back to, their, to a new bottom and often to their death. You know, the shame of relapse and the shaming that we inadvertently sometimes do in anonymous programs. 
um, can can drive people to continue to use rather than to say, hey, this was an interruption, it was a, a blip, and I can keep moving on. I don't have to. I don't have to say that I've lost absolutely everything I've done into this moment. And I know Abs- that people would. I know you wouldn't, but I know that like I've had lots of arguments about that, and I oh, can yeah. stand my ground on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a very real component of some twelve-step recovery. Is yeah. this over reliance on a absolutely. clean date or a sobriety date? It mm-hmm. it can be really helpful. Yeah for a lot of reasons. And it also can be counterproductive for a lot of reasons. And it's very individual. And that's why we like this question so much because we get very often nuanced individual answers about what a sobriety date or a clean date means to particular person in recovery every time we ask this question we get a little bit different of an answer and that's awesome that's what we want it's different for me too i have a sobriety date but i also recognize for me the longer i'm in recovery the less the time matters and the more this day matters this moment matters Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, abstinence or a length of abstinence does not necessarily equate with a person's kind of where they're at on their recovery journey. Right. I mean, but it's also interesting. I mean, I really respect people like my husband. He literally, you know, he got clean and never used again. Yeah. So February 5th, 1989 is like his date. And he's a unicorn. Right. These people don't exist widely. 100 percent. 100%. Like I would like my first stint in treatment was when I was 16 years old and then back in the rooms in my early 20s and so you know it takes what it takes and it's yes. so often not linear and not so linear. often uh, we have reoccurrences mm-hmm. and that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. And yes. for me I understand that all of my encounters with recovery prior to this last recovery eight plus years ago Mm -hmm. were instrumental in getting me where I needed to be in order to ultimately be where I am today. Yeah. I mean, it really does go back to the stages of change. And one of the things that that I love about the stages of change and something that a dear friend of mine introduced me to this concept of. For, for people listening who don't know the stages of change, it just kind of identifies where you're at in your kind of decision to make changes or abilities. And it starts off with pre-contemplation, then it's contemplation, then you move into action, and then you end, it might, it might be even missing one there, and then it, you're in a maintenance phase where you kind of maintain that change, whether it's sobriety or, or whatever it is. And then on the wheel that you look at, like the stages of change, it goes maintenance. And then the next one on there is relapse. So a friend of mine, Kathy, who's a, she recovers coach and a wonderful woman. um, She kind of redrew the stages of change diagram to put in celebration after maintenance. And so she argues that if you, if you kind of after maintenance, like after maybe years of recovery, if you move into the stage called that celebration and you maintain that love of recovery and celebrating your life as it is now 
then you don't have to look at the rest of the wheel because you are not going to head to relapse. And I really love that. So I, you know, I try to live my life in celebration of my recovery each and every day. Um, and I feel like, I feel like I do, you know, I really do not, not that every day is balloons and cake, but I definitely feel like I am in a celebratory, um, phase of my recovery, you know, just loving it and sharing it. That's absolutely fantastic. I love that twist on the stages of change. Don, how do you serve the recovery community? Well, my daughter and I started a, a not a, well now a nonprofit organization called She Recovers. So how I serve is being a volunteer in that community for that nonprofit. I, um, I sometimes host meetings. We have online meetings. I attend them and participate as a member. Um, I probably say the most service I do is in a private Facebook group we have called She Recovers Together, where I spend time every single day going in there and just um, supporting and responding and celebrating other people, providing um, guidance and support answers. I think that that's probably um, the most time that I kind of put in on a daily basis. Um, of course, I'm available to a lot of people. I. I no longer sponsor because I, I don't consider myself an active member of my 12-step program, and I, I, but I do still mentor and support a lot of women kind of through text and messenger and in person. And I also, once a month, I host an in-person gathering called the She Recovers Sharing Circle here where I live. Um, and I just, I mean, I love that we're getting back to in-person, so. Yes. Uh, yeah, I write, you know, I think my, I kind of, I, I write and blog and, and share and speak whenever I'm asked to, you know, if I'm asked to speak on a podcast or anywhere else, I, I kind of see that as part of my service. I mean, I guess it's gotten a little more complicated this last few months because it's also, I have a publicist who's saying I need to do it to sell my book, but I just think <laughs> like any time, I just tell her like, I, you know, I wanted to write the book and I wanted to hold it in my hands, but I really don't care about selling it or not. I just wanted to write it and have it. The book you're talking about is She Recovers Every Day meditations for women mm -hmm. and it's published by one of my favorite publishers yeah. hazelden press yeah. i am a hazelden alum oh my, my gosh amazing and i am forever grateful for my experience at hazelden and really believe they provided the recipe for me to unlock my recovery in that not only were they able to launch me into my 12-step recovery, which I ultimately took out of Hazelden and into the rooms and into 12-step recovery, but also provided EMDR therapy, which the combination of those two unlocked my recovery in a way that I never thought possible and was the secret combination. Love it. I mean, I think there are so many healing and therapeutic modalities that we are introduced to uh, if we are fortunate and privileged enough to get into treatment, right? And EMDR is certainly one of those modalities. I love it. I think, you know, I talk a lot about just uh, having a patchwork of recovery, and that means just taking everything that is available, especially in early recovery, accessing whatever you can. And, and you know, again, to to 12-step recovery, there's, I always say, like when I got into recovery and I left treatment, nobody said, listen to some podcasts, read some Quitlet, 
go to a yoga class, do right. EMDR. Totally. It was like, no, go to 12 step. Here's a me- here's a meeting list. And that's it. Like that was <laughs> it. And, and, and I didn't know there was any different. And honestly, for me at that time, nothing else probably would have worked. I needed to go where there was both fellowship and structure and a, and a roadmap for kind of doing the internal reflection that I needed to start doing in order to figure out why I kept messing up my life so badly. No doubt about it. I'm glad you invoked the word privilege. So I'm acutely aware that the opportunities afforded to me in recovery, hazeled in the EMDR and other opportunities are inextricably linked to the privilege that I have. And not everybody has those opportunities for that privilege. Thank you. Yeah, it's important to me. It's important to me that we recognize that. Certainly it's important that I recognize my privilege as a white, I mean, I say as a white, cis, educated, yes. and I also say Canadian. I mean, even just being Canadian is a privilege these days. I doubt. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. Don, last question before we launch into the main part of the interview. What does recovery mean to you? You know, it, it's one of those things that it changes all the time. But right now, what what my recovery means to me is just, yeah, kind of it's uh, recovery is a place that I get to live. And it's a place where I get to do self-reflection, internal kind of thinking and changing. And it's so it's very, on one hand, recovery is something that's all about me. And trying to be the best version of myself, kind of recovering my potential, my my essence, all that stuff. And at the same time, recovery is about community. For me, it's about, uh, you know, I, I do this work for me. I do it so that I show up better for my family, my friends and the people that I love. But recovery is really so much about community and connection. Mm. And my life's purpose is to ensure that other women and, you know, Come along, man. Fine. No problem. Love you, too. Absolutely. But that other women know that recovery is possible for them, too. And to kind of help just make recovery spaces uh, an inviting, open, uh, welcoming place for people to come in and do the work, like kind of doing the personal stuff that I talk about being the other half of what I think recovery is. So it's kind of the individual and community mixed together. And that's just today's. Like, I'm tomorrow, i probably give you a different I know. <laughs> But I love that you highlighted the spiritual axiom of recovery for me, for sure, in my experience, being about leaning into the work that I needed to lean into, which is a very individual, personal endeavor. Yeah. And how inextricably linked it is to being in community. Yeah. And how I needed community in order to be able to do the work on myself i needed to see examples yeah i needed to see people who had what i wanted so i needed to believe that i was like you enough to believe that i could get better i love the community was so important and the work was so personal yeah yeah oh my gosh somebody should just write that down that's (laughs) beautiful the community was so important and the work was so personal and it's just it's you know it's the marriage of them both right and i do i love what you talk about you know because recovery for me was i remember 
the last time, and I have fallen in love with my 12-step recovery program three or four times in the last 30 some years. And I know that we have another love affair in front of us Yeah. Um, for me to go into a meeting and sit down and fall in love with it all over again. And it's not that I don't love it. It's just that I don't go into the meetings often enough these days to fall in love with it. But my last recovery was me take, I had kind of been off of meetings and because I hadn't really been, for whatever reason, I wasn't seeing what I wanted in the rooms yeah. at that time. I was seeing a lot of unhealthiness and there was a lot of kind of fellowship crap going on. And I, you know, it just so happened that I was in university, I was doing graduate degrees and I was like, it was easy for me to drift away. And when I went back, it was because my baby sister, eight years younger than I is, hit a bottom. And we tried everything with her except bringing her to meetings. And finally it was like, ah, I got to bring you to this meeting and see what. <laughs> I remember going in there and the first meeting was listening through her ears. And the second meeting was listening through my own ears. And I fell in love with it because I, again, I, there were just like women in this women's meeting, which there hadn't been women's meeting when I had earlier been in, in that program. And I, just, I wanted to be them. Like I, I wanted to be those yes. women. And so, um, you know, I just kept going back and, and, and stayed for another 12 or 14 yes. years. And it's really only been a few years that, that I've been stepping away. And that just came down to burnout and, you know, feeling guilty when I would go to a meeting and somebody would ask me if I would sponsor them. And I'd have to say no, because my life is, I'm already so filled up with recovery yeah. in another space. So, um, but yeah, I love recovery. And I love that. Welcome, Way Out faithful and first-timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees, in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this 
podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, I'm honored to bring you my interview with person in long-term recovery, co-founder of the recovery organization, She Recovers, and author of the new daily meditation book, She Recovers Every Day, Don Nickel. Hearing Don share her journey to and through recovery to this point is at once an absolute delight and truly enlightening as she shares the reality of her own experience with addiction while dispensing recovery insights and wisdom rooted in compassion and grounded in reality and practicality. Her work with the She Recovers Foundation and her new offering in the recovery literature genre are tremendous examples of what a true treasure Don is for the recovery community, as is the outstanding interview with Don that is about to unfold before your very ears. So listen up. Don Nickel, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast to share your journey to and through recovery to this point, but also share about your work with She Recovers and about the book you just wrote, She Recovers Every Day, Meditations for Women. You are a person in long-term recovery. You are an author, and you are the co-founder of She Recovers, and you're here with us, and I couldn't be happier about it. Before we get into your journey to and through recovery to this point, why don't you take a brief moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience, and we'll get started. Thank you, Charles. Well, I my name is Dawn, and my pronouns are she, her. I live in Canada. I live in Victoria, what's known, now known as Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, and I'm really very fortunate and privileged to live, play, and work on this land um, that so many have actually had to um, suffer on so that mm. we white, white settlers could be here. And yeah, I'm a woman in long-term recovery. I am a person who loves recovery. And uh, I, I would say that probably pretty well every cell in my being and every minute of my day is kind of infused with, wrapped up or focused on recovery. Um, I am, along with my daughter, Taryn Strong, one of the founders of the She Recovers Foundation, an organization that she and I started about 12 years ago, where she's a young woman in long-term recovery as well. And um, I hit the wall with workaholism and decided that I wanted to have a conversation in cyberspace about how my workaholism recovery was very similar to my substance use recovery. And I, so I started that conversation through a blog called Recovering Dawn, which turned into a Facebook called She Recovers, which turned into a retreat program, which turned into the She Recovers Foundation, which is now a nonprofit in the United States and a charity in the, in Canada. So um, I am a grandmother and a wife, and I think a good friend. Uh, I work in the area of mental health and addictions. I'm a research and writing consultant, and I do a lot of work for government. So yeah, a lot of everything I do that I'm thinking about during the day is focused on on uh, the promise of recovery and, and how we can invite and bring more people into recovery. What an absolute gift, Don, to be able to use your gifts talents, skills, and abilities to be able to 
give to the recovery community, specifically with the foundation of She Recovers. And I want to talk a lot about that. Before we get into that, let's share a little bit about your journey to and through recovery to this point. Uh, What was it like prior to you getting into recovery for you? Uh, you know, when I try to think of the words that best describe my my active use period, I, I think probably the, the word that comes to me in my mind in this moment is like, it was confusing. Mm. It was confusing because I was just living in such a hellhole, it felt like emotionally. I, you know, I was just in and out of the hospital for overdoses, some planned, you know, some not planned. I got addicted very quickly, kind of starting when I was 15, 16. By the time I was 17, I was completely addicted to drugs and alcohol. And by the time I was 19, um, and I knew I had a problem when I was 17. And by the time I was 19, I started to try and stop using. And I just, I was just unable to. And so my life looked like I put myself in some seriously compromising situations. I ended up, um, sexually assaulted. I ended up, uh, you know, hanging out with people who were doing extremely illegal things. And I was on the periphery and just lived in a lot of kind of danger for years. And uh, when I turned 20, I had the great fortune of becoming pregnant. And for whatever reason, in my little head, it was like, okay, now I'm going to get my shit together. Yeah, you know, I really, finally, I'm going to have a human being that's going to love me back. I had, you know, kind of had grown up feeling unloved. Uh, low self-esteem, all those things. And so, although I wasn't able, you know, I'm not one of those people, oh, I'm pregnant now, I'm not going to drink or use drugs. Um, I didn't use drugs as much during that pregnancy, but I did drink and I drank to excess many times through that pregnancy. And that's just the reality of it. But but now I had like an even stronger commitment to giving up the insanity and uh, wasn't able to, but did be, went from being a daily user of, of many of like I always say all the drugs, but it wasn't all the drugs. I think I experimented probably with all the drugs over a period of many years, but I, you know, I, I turned into kind of a binge user and uh, that became even worse because my binges were outrageous. Mm. You know, it's almost like if you could just do a little bit every day on yeah. a regular basis, it's easier to maintain. But when you yeah. saved it all up, it was like, Oh my God. Yeah. I too used early and often started when I was 15 and became a daily user and as often of a drinker as I possibly could at that tender age. And then in my twenties, having my first child and ultimately a second child, it became extremely bingy. And I still binged when I was actively using every day in high school, but the binges were worse because you said saving up. That's what it felt like, right? Like this thing was like twisting like a spring inside of me, right? Until it just couldn't twist any tighter and bam. Exactly. Exactly. So so after my first daughter was born, I ended up in a relationship with my drug dealer, um, married him, had another baby, Taryn, who is the co-founder of the She Recovers Foundation. And then I had this really interesting period of time where like he he had a serious problem with drugs, you know, compared to me. So a lot of the focus was on his problem and not mine. 
which was handy. You know, it's, it's convenient, handy. isn't it's it? Convenient. Like, oh, you've got such a problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, he ended like, up in a drug-induced psychosis state from a little bit too much of the white powder thing, mm-hmm. and um, it kind of that's what that's what got us in. That's what got me into recovery. It didn't get him into recovery. Uh, but before they would release him from the hospital, they wanted him to see a drug counselor. So the both of us saw a drug counselor and um, she told my ex-husband that he needed to not just not do that powder anymore, but that he couldn't drink or smoke pot or do any of those other things. And he was like, yeah, well, I'm out of here in that case. Right. And I continued to see her for six months because, again, my focus was on how do I make sure he's OK. And after about six months, my counselor turned to me one during one session. I saw her every two weeks for six months. And she just said, I don't actually remember what your husband even looks like. I don't want to talk about him anymore. I'd like to talk about you and your drug problem. Mm. And it was one of those moments where, you know, when I think back on it, I can almost still see her face and I can kind of have, I remember the feeling of the gig is up, you know, the gig is up. I've been trying on my own forever. It's just never going to work and I need help. And this person is handing me an opportunity and I can shut it down and say, you know, just do what he did was I'm out of here. But I didn't, I said, you know, you're right. I do. And I have a problem and I, I don't know what to do, but I've stopped now, you know, and I was like, I've stopped now. So like, I'm not using now and I'm good now. And she somehow got me to agree that if I binged again, or if I used again, cause I was like, I'm never going to use again as we do. Um, <laughs> that I would that I would contemplate and consider going into um, residential treatment. And oh, the piece that I left out was that that actually it was an abusive marriage, it, uh, primarily cocaine induced violence, but violence nonetheless. And so she had a, a frank talk with me about, you know, you need to get your shit together because you need to get out of that marriage. Yeah. And I have these two little kids now. And she was right. And I said, OK, if I use again, I'll go to treatment. And for whatever reason, you know, because I'd been lying about my using for so long, uh, the next time I used, which was about 10 days later, I called her and I said, okay, I'm ready. And I went to treatment. And again, you know, that's where 1987, I, I didn't, I haven't used, drank alcohol, used cocaine or taken um, benzos since that time. And that was the beginning. That was, you know, that was the introduction to recovery. That was when um, I, I started going to a 12-step recovery program for alcohol. And was still smoking lots of pot. And I remember feeling like, you know, this isn't right. I shouldn't be smoking yeah. lots of pot. Yeah. And then I shared that in that meeting, in a meeting with other people who were there for alcohol. And somebody came up at the end of the meeting and said, you can't talk about that here. And I kind of went, okay, perfect. I'm just going to keep smoking pot and going to meetings. Yeah, wow. Two, yeah, what do you do? Yeah, the outside issues. Yeah. So, and then at the end of the two years, I ended up at a bottom, which was just emotionally as devastating on, on marijuana as my previous bottom had been, you know, I just, I couldn't function and I was paranoid and all these crazy things were happening. So I went back to treatment to get off of the marijuana and uh, yeah, went, went to a different 12 step program. One that in my view, for me, didn't give me that back door anymore. And Don, feels like you were doing harm reduction before they were calling it harm reduction. Absolutely. And we all do, <laughs> right? I mean, I was doing harm reduction from the time I was 17 to 27 yeah. when I went to treatment. No doubt. You know, it's like no. harm reduction is I'm not going to drink every day or I'm not going to drink vodka. I'm just going to yeah. drink beer. I know, I like know. all of this stuff. It's all oh, harm yeah. reduction and we all do it. And I yes. think the 
the weird thing for people in recovery today is because recovery is so accessible and available, people hop into recovery and they say, okay, I'm done without understanding that that may not be true. And, right. you know, we just need to be compassionate and support people to understand that, you know, like the raw, raw, I'm never using again thing. It's a lovely instinct, but so few people can achieve that and succeed at never using again because I decided yesterday for the first time I'm never using again. Absolutely. Which is why for me, one day at a time is so important because I cannot yeah. use today. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, Don, tell me then about how your recovery journey progresses from that point. You enter another 12-step fellowship. By the way, I must say, and I don't know that I've ever said this on this podcast, but I think it's important. I always introduce myself as an addict and an alcoholic, regardless of the 12-step fellowship I'm attending, because it's important for me to be able to remind myself that both apply to me. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is an important self-affirmation and self and an important statement for me to make out loud on a regular basis. And most folks, I think, don't do that. And that's fine. But for me, regardless of the fellowship, even if it's specifically geared to one substance or another, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm saying both. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, that's one of the things I, when I talk about 12 step recovery, I, you know, I would say, I love it and we could do so much better. Yeah. And I think that one of the things I try to advocate for is allowing people to be who they are in, in those programs and not thinking that we're the boss of their words. Yes. You know, I remember being the raised in, yeah. I rem exactly. Like, and honestly, to be honest, I think probably I was one of those police persons in, in, and I, you know, I, I don't usually talk about specific programs, but I'll do it here um, in NA. I, you know, and that's what my recovery journey was, was like hardcore NA for 12 years. Like just service at the group level. You know, we started an area in my basement. Then I went on to regional service and on to uh, national service. I never got to the world, but, you know, I was very just, you know, sponsoring all sorts of people running campouts and conferences and I was just that was my recovery journey everything about it and I was one of those people that probably like if we were in NA and somebody said sober I would probably quietly roll my eyes you know it yeah. was awful when I think about it yeah and 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 my gosh it's just I'm ashamed I think when I think about the judgment that I held um but also you know, I was living a new way of life and I and I Absolutely. thought there were rules and I had to abide by them or I was you know I had this if you don't do exactly like I mean somebody else saying sober it was not going to cause me to go and relapse and die but I treated <laughs> it like it was it was really great it was insane right yeah we're not necessarily well in uh, just because we've been in 12-step recovery for a while um so that was my recovery journey and you know I did start going to um I started therapy at the same time so I started putting together kind of a patchwork even early in recovery yeah you know I'd always yeah. been an avid reader um, I loved going to therapy. Um, I, you know, tried to, I, I've been trying to develop a, a mindful kind of meditation program for 30 some years and I've taken trainings. I've, you know, gone on retreats. I've done all the things and I still, I still make up my own kind of what my meditation practice is. It's often a walking meditation. 
Um, so yeah, I just kind of lived the life of a woman in a 12 step recovery program, you know, ran into a guy that I used to know when I was using and I ran into him in a, in an NA convention on a Friday night in June, 1989. I had about three weeks clean. He had about four months. We hung out for six months as friends. Uh, then we fell in love and, you know, he's upstairs right now, probably making my breakfast. <laughs> that all turned out kind of okay. You know, it was one of those, so. you're not supposed to get in a relationship. And I was going to say, that's another one of those rules. Right? <laughs> but his sponsor was married to my sponsor and they'd been in, they'd been in a relationship with one another since they were six months clean. Yeah. So like, they were like, whatever, <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's all good. So yeah, that so really was. And I, I guess for me, what happened is I went back to school, you know, my kids were growing up. I had, you know, you had to go through kind of all the relationship issues that you go through and um, just started branching out a little bit and doing other things, retreats and kind of gatherings became a big part of my, my process, like just spending time with other women in circle. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I, I've never left NA. And I, as I said earlier, I, I go back and I fall in love with it all over again. And I, I will be a member until they put me in that thing where they're going to burn me up because right. the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop using. And I will have that, I believe, for the rest of my life. And I know a lot of some people drift away, so to speak, from 12-step recovery and they say they've left it. And like, I will never reject personally. This is just for me. I will yep. never reject the program that gave me back my life. Absolutely. I couldn't that's agree more. Did. Yeah. And I uh, have very, very similar feelings. 12-step recovery is central to my recovery. And it's been a bigger and lesser part of my life over the years. And there's ebbs and flows in it. And that's okay. And it can be something that I go back to or embrace more fully. Exactly. Um, and so this idea that I need to go to, you know, six meetings a week in order to be a thriving member and yeah. I, you know i just don't think that's the case i think you know we can ebb and flow in all sorts of components of our recovery and i'm so glad that you invoked this patchwork i have my own patchwork and 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 we celebrate that we encourage that we shout that from the rooftops on this podcast that take that. advantage of all of the things that are available to you and try them out. You know, for me, 12-step uh, recovery was essential. EMDR therapy was essential. So were podcasts. So yes. was Joe and Charlie talking about the big book. So yeah. there was a Quitlet, like yeah. all of it. Um, yeah. And it continues to be an evolution for me in terms of the things that I incorporate into my recovery. Absolutely. I, for me, I mean, writing is therapy and writing are probably the biggest cornerstones of my recovery right now. But I, I wanted, I, I like, so one of the things that happened for me in my recovery was, uh, and in NA, we have some beautiful literature and, yeah. and, and we get new literature all the time, which I love, but there's this, a daily meditation book, which I've always loved daily meditation books. And I love the Hazelden series and, you know, I've always had Hazelden meditation books for women by my bedside, which is why it's so exciting for me to have written one. But um, I don't remember the date. I, I always want to say I know the date and then I can never remember it. But there's a daily meditation book in NA called Just for Today. Yes. And there's a date and it might be January 5th, but I, I don't remember. I, like I said, I think I remember it. But, and it talks about and it, it, it impacted me when I first read it. 
and it talks about how you know we go to meetings we go to so many meetings and we're so involved and we're involved in service and we're doing all of these things but we have a family and that you know at a certain point yeah we need to be we need to go home and start doing service in our family yes and, and i remember somebody saying it's either in that reading or somebody saying you know like my kids don't know if i'm at a meeting or if i'm at the bar it's yeah. the same thing to them i'm not there to tuck them in at night mm. And so I remember being really impacted at a certain point in my life where everything was, you know, program, 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 people, program, activities, weekends were all program, program. And it was like, you know what, I need to go home and spend some time with my kids. I need yeah. to be there for them. And so it's about balance, right? And, and again, no judgment on people who do need and, and benefit from and love going to sit three, four, five, six, seven meetings a week, if that's what's working for you. But I think if you're one of those people, and you, if you have kids and those kids aren't going with you, you know, then maybe there's an opportunity to kind of reflect on um, how much, how much recovery your family is experiencing. Right. And that, that's kind of where I ended up with it. It was, it was, it was too much, too much program, not enough focus on my family. The whole idea for me is to take this out into the world. It's easy to be the ideal of a recovered yeah. person in a 12-step meeting and wax poetically yeah. about steps and spiritual principles. principles. Yeah. yeah. But the whole idea yeah. is that I take it to my workplace, I take it home. And if I'm not home, yeah. then I can't take it there, right? So exactly. yeah, absolutely. No yeah. question. Don, tell me a little bit about the inspiration for she recovers and i want to touch on the uh importance of a organization like she recovers for women in recovery we hear a lot in recovery especially 12 step but other programs too that we're all alike we're all the same and it you know we just all have to follow, follow the exact same format and we'll get better yeah. Uh, again, we shout on this podcast that we all recover a little bit differently and leverage whatever resources are available to you. But I think it's really important to highlight some of the unique aspects of women in recovery. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I could go on forever and I won't, but, but, you know, I can kind of probably narrow it down to a couple of things that are really important and that kind of, in my view, explain why. We need something different for women. Um, and that is that women, when it comes to substance use, the the period of time that most women experience problems with substance use is kind of between 18 and 35. Like that's kind of the period, which yeah. directly coincides with women's, not everybody's obviously, but kind of the, the majority of women's childbearing years. Right. So because addiction is so prevalent in women during these years, the chances, um, and not everybody chooses to have children, obviously, but there are a lot of moms who are in or, or seeking or need recovery. And uh, the stigma associated with women and addiction is like 10 times what it is for dudes. So it makes it harder for women to seek help because the stigma is so high, the judgment for people, right? It's kind of yeah. like, Guys are like, you're just partiers. You know, he's a partier. He's a partier. You know, her, she's a pathetic woman. She's a pathetic. She's a bad mom. She's a bad mom. She doesn't care about her kids. 
you know, like, why doesn't she just get her shit together? And so the stigma the, is a big piece. Yeah. The stigma. And for me, I think, too, the what I interview women in long-term recovery, there's a high prevalence of sexual abuse and sexual assault. And I don't know that it's always perceived as that from the outside because, well, yeah. you were drinking, you were in, you put, quote unquote, you put yourself in a compromising position. Right. Well, and, and the tr- fact of the matter is, and I'm, I'm not going to remember the percentage now, but it's true. Uh, you know, one in five women has been sexually assaulted. And that doesn't mean in active addiction. Right. It's just women, girls are more likely to be sexually assaulted. So we bring that trauma history with us, which is right. another reason why we need our own spaces, because we don't want to be triggered by the guy sitting across the table in our meeting that looks like Uncle John who was, you know, like that type of thing. And it's, and also because we want to explore and talk about, so if she recovers, we, we consider ourselves a trauma responsive organization. The people who hold our host, our meetings are trained in trauma informed space holding. So I think that, you know, that's one of the other reasons why we, why women require this. Right. And it's not that we can't also be in meetings where there are other non-binary or male people. Uh, we have nine non-binary people in our community who identify with women's communities. So it's not, it's not, it's just different for us. And I think it, um, that's okay. I, I, I happen to think for some of the s- different reasons that uh, dudes should have their own recovery spaces too. You know, I, I always say like when my, when my husband, when my husband's kind of being a dork, which husbands inevitably are, you know, I'll say, you need to start going back to the men's meeting. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it is, right? I mean, hey, I, look, I agree. And I think yeah. this idea, the ability to be vulnerable yeah. for a man with other men is a learned skill. It's something that I had to learn. It's not an easy thing to do for yeah. many men is to be vulnerable with other men. But I can learn to do it. And when I do that, I'm rewarded. Yeah. And you can do it by watching other men who have learned how to do it. Right. And you do that in, I think, a group of men rather than yes. in a group, in a mixed group where, you know, macho takes over. 100%. And, not, and you know. perhaps some other motivations that I want to look good in front of yeah. X, Y, or Z woman. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I think, you know, people do say, well, what about he recovers? And I'm like, hey, uh, my life is full. I don't have time for he recovers, but there should definitely be a he recovers one day. I couldn't agree more, Don. And maybe that's just something that I help start. There you go. You're wonderful. I think, you know, when I think about all the people, all the dudes I've spoken with, um, I, I really love listening to you and hearing what you've got to say. And we're, we're very aligned in our thinking. So I love that. Thank you, Don. I appreciate that. This has been a wonderful conversation. We are going to end with some closing questions and we're going to rapid fire them. Are you ready? Yeah, go. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? Uh, Get up in the morning, drink a great big, huge glass of water, make a latte, sit down with a recovery meditation book. These days it's mine, but also um, Karen Casey's um, Each Day a New Beginning, which is the one that I've been reading from Hazelden for like, I don't know, 30 years. It's a 40-year-old book. 
um, during, during the day to always check in with a number of people in recovery, both asking for guidance or support and giving it. And I like to walk and spend time with my grandbabies. Oh, I heard community in there. I heard Quitlet in there. I heard activity and physical activity in there. That's a great recipe. And family, which, you know, a tremendous recipe for uh, a great daily recovery routine. Don, what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? Um, well, that would have to be the basic text, Narcotics Anonymous. Yes. Yeah. A fine, fine example of, I got to say, one of the seminal offerings in the Quitlet space. Don, mm -hmm. what is the best piece of advice you have received in recovery thus far? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's kind of. There's two. Can I give two? I'm allowed yes, to give two. absolutely. One is one is um, be honest. First and foremost, just be honest. And sometimes it takes some work to get to honest, but do it. And secondly is secondly is probably be curious. I love that, <laughs> and it reminds me of open, honest, and willing. Right? Yeah. The how, for sure. Don, what is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? Um, the greatest challenge kind of as, as something that happened probably mm -hmm. has been losing my mother. Um, yeah, losing my mother and having my daughter fall into addiction. Yeah. Those two things were kind of around the same time. Yeah. Wow. No doubt. Um, incredible challenges. This one is the flip side of that. What is your greatest success in recovery? Having a daughter in recovery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How Hands beautiful. Down. Hands down. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. What a gift. Yeah. The next one's a doozy and then we end with a fun one. Okay. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? It's very recent because I've done so much work on forgiveness. But in, in October, my dad was really sick and he was in the hospital and then he, he died in the hospital. And there were, a there were a period of few days where he had COVID and they wouldn't let us in the hospital mm. to see him. And, yeah. you, you know, it wasn't kind of the time in COVID where people weren't allowed in hospitals. So I'm, I'm angry at myself for not um, advocating louder to let me in to see my dad before he was like no longer able to talk and, and communicate with us. So I'm still working on that little thing, but I'm getting there. I have, you know, I've done some fire ceremonies and lots of writing about it, but I still feel like, you know, I wished that I had been more vociferous in my advocating to, to let them let them, because they said that they would let me see him when he was palliative and he was palliative at that moment so they should have let me in and I, I don't know what happened there so so I'm just still processing that other than that honestly I'm sorry but I've just done like so many years of forgiveness and I, there's I there's nothing that I don't forgive myself for especially the things I did in active addiction I'm well known for saying that it goes like the shit you did was just the shit you did it's not who you are and I just believe that with every ounce of my being 
That's why we ask this question, and I love that we ask it, because it offers the opportunity to really individually express one's relationship with forgiveness. And it's a journey, it's a process, and it's a spectrum. And what a universal feeling to look back on a situation and say, I wish I would have done it differently. And that's going to happen all throughout our journey. And I, too, have a very different relationship with forgiveness because I actively practice it every day. And so I can say that I don't regret anything. I don't have any resentments right now, but that's because I do a ton of work on it. Yeah. You know, and that's that's an integral part of my daily recovery process. Yeah. Here's the fun one. What song symbolizes recovery to you? Oh, my gosh. Oh, so many. I don't know. Maybe life is a highway. I don't know right now. I I change it all the time, but there's a We're going to roll with life is a highway. <laughs> I love that song. It's a great, it's a great song. So check the show notes right now for Don's contact information, information about She Recovers and how to get the book She Recovers Every Day, Meditations for Women. In the show notes is her quit lit recommendation and her best piece of recovery advice. Don, thank you so much for what was an absolutely tremendous interview. Thank you, Charles. I really enjoyed it, too. And thank you all. Thank you so much for the work that you do in the recovery space. It's important, and you are awesome. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for your ears. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast.com all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.